This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special episode. We're here to discuss the tragic and unnecessary death of Gary Fowler, inflicted by a grossly negligent and racist healthcare system. Multiple hospitals have the blood of Mr. Fowler on their hands. However, this is a story of hope in that his death started the color of care movement for more equitable healthcare in America. When Oprah Winfrey heard about the death of Gary Fowler, she started this important campaign for equity, and I'd now like to read a quote from Oprah about the death of Mr. Gary Fowler. I read a story that haunted me, the story of the Fowler family. When Mr. Fowler became ill, three different hospitals turned him away. He went home, sat in his recliner, and died. I wondered how many different Gary Fowlers there are out there. What if I told you the biggest indicator of how long you're going to live is your zip code? What if access to life-saving care for somebody that you love depended on the color of their skin? The COVID-19 pandemic exposed a tragic divide in our healthcare system. We now need to stand up. We need to do something about it. We need to change an entire system. This is something you start now. Together, we can make it better. Oprah Winfrey began her crusade to change the system when COVID-19 elevated our national awareness of health inequities in our country, a result of exacerbated health outcomes triggered by coronavirus infection across racial lines and the longstanding pre-existing disparities that were already there, now being magnified under the microscope of the pandemic. And this, unfortunately, is not the only racial injustice that we're dealing with in this moment, a cultural zeitgeist for Civil rights and social justice has also been awakened in the collective consciousness of all Americans following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and those are just a few examples of the lethality of racism in recent years. All that said, on the positive side, there's never been a time in the post-civil rights era where there's been so many positive breakthroughs and substantial strides made both politically and economically for African Americans. The call for improved social justice and health equity in our society does show that we're moving in the right direction, but we have so much more work to do. This week on The Race to Value, we're speaking with Keith Gambrell, the son of Gary Fowler. The story of his father's death is the focal point of a recent documentary, 
The Color of Care, that premiered on the Smithsonian Channel earlier this summer. The documentary is from executive producer Oprah Winfrey, and it chronicles how people of color suffer from systemically substandard health care in the United States, and how COVID-19 exposed the tragic consequences of this inequity. The Color of Care documentary traces the origins of racial health disparities to practices that began during slavery in the U.S., and they continue today. Using moving testimony from those who lost loved ones to COVID-19 and frontline medical workers in overwhelmed hospitals, it interweaves expert interviews and powerful data to expose the devastating toll of embedded racism in our healthcare system. The Color of Care is produced by Harpo Productions with executive producers Oprah Winfrey, Terry Wood, and Catherine Sear. The film is directed by Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning director Yance Ford and produced by Kate Bolger and Yance Ford. After listening to the podcast, I urge you to watch The Color of Care to understand how the system was built, why it doesn't work for everyone, and how together we can and must make it better. Join the movement today at thecolorofcare.org. This week's episode is brought to you by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. The ACLM recently partnered with us, the Institute for Advancing Health Value, on an intelligence brief covering the potential of lifestyle medicine to address health equity. We invite you to download that today at advancinghealthvalue.org. Let us now hear from Keith Gambrell as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. And if you like our content, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss out on future episodes. Keith, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate your willingness to share your story, despite the pain you must feel in telling it. I can't imagine how difficult this must be for you. You not only lost your father, Gary Fowler, but you lost your grandfather, David Fowler, to COVID six hours apart. Thanks for being with us today to provide your perspective. Thank you for having me. How are you guys doing today? Oh, doing well. And yeah, I've really been looking forward to our conversation today, Keith. Me as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Keith, I thought we'd start the conversation today by having you tell the story of your family. Systemic racism and anti-Blackness are a public health crisis, and we need to seize this moment to open up people's eyes to health disparity and champion real change in the U.S. And your father, Gary Fowler, was a Black man that died in his home because no hospital would treat him despite his COVID-19 symptoms. After learning about your father's story, I'm reminded of the, of the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And indeed, your family experienced a grave injustice that should not have happened in a humane society where everyone is guaranteed the right to basic life-saving healthcare. Keith, can you share your story of your father's experience with the healthcare system and how that affected your family? Yes. Yeah, so my grandfather was uh, beginning to feel sick. I want to say the third week of March and eventually he needed to go to the hospital. So he tested positive for COVID about three or four days after my grandfather was admitted to the hospital. My dad and mother started showing signs, coughing, fever, diarrhea, didn't have an appetite, getting weaker and weaker by the hour. So my dad wants to go to the hospital because he's feeling within himself that he needs to go to the hospital because he's not feeling like his normal self. So he goes to Beaumont in Gross Point Woods. I mean, Gross Point Shores, I'm sorry. It's the next city over from Gross Point Woods where my parents live at. Goes there, he explains to the doctor what he's experiencing. 
the doctor kind of wrote him off like, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Kind of went against what everything my father was telling him he was experiencing within himself. So the doctor wrote him off. And at first my father's like, all right, maybe he's right. Maybe I do have bronchitis. Maybe I am just overreacting. But the next day, my dad temperature shot up to 102. Okay. So now he's like, I need to go to the hospital because I don't have bronchitis. Bronchitis has never given me a fever of this magnitude. So we take him to another hospital in Detroit, Detroit receiving. My father gets out of the car and he's not even allowed into the lobby of the hospital because they have a quarantine outside the hospital. So they don't even ask my father his name. So the lady looks at my dad, asks him what he's there for. He tells her, my father's in Henry Ford on a ventilator due to COVID. I'm experiencing every COVID symptom that's on the TV, that the news is telling people to watch out for. I feel that way, man. Like I need help. They look at my dad, tell him, oh, sir, you're better off going to Henry Ford, which is four miles away from Detroit receiving. We're back in the car, we take our dad to Henry Ford. My dad's in there about two and a half hours. So now we're thinking our dad's gonna get the help we need. He calls probably about another hour after that say they're not admitting him to the hospital despite him telling them that grandpa is in this same exact hospital on the ventilator due to COVID-19. I was around him the day he came to the hospital. I'm having a fever that won't break. I'm coughing. I have diarrhea, I'm vomiting. I have all the signs that you guys are telling me to watch out for. I have it. Please help. They give my father a piece of paper, telling him to go home and act as if he has COVID, but you're not sick enough to come into the hospital to get the proper treatment that you need. But just go home and if you need to come back to the hospital, come back. Like we take our dad home. My dad's in the car crying. I never seen my dad cry. I'm 35 years old. I was 33 at the 32 at the time. And I never seen my dad cry. My dad broke down because he knew what the inevitable was because he knew how he was feeling. The doctors just wrote him off as if they knew exactly how this man was experiencing, what he was experiencing within himself. They didn't really listen to him at all. They didn't give him a fighting chance. They failed my father in a whole, as a whole healthcare system. So that day we took our father back home and two days later I talked to my dad and he tells me that grandpa passed. This is 1130 at night. They tells me, you know, grandpa just passed. I just go, how are you, dad? How are you feeling? You know, like, I know you're not feeling the best. And my dad and grandfather were best friends. Like they talked every day, all day. They weren't talking, they were together. So I knew my dad was heartbroken over my grandfather. So I talked to him that night. He just told me he was just tired. He was like, I'm just tired, son. I'm just tired. But he just kept telling me that night. And he was like, but I'll see you. I'll see you, son. So I hang up, go to sleep. Uh, my phone rings about 7.30. It's my brother, Troy just screaming like, dad won't wake up, dad won't wake up. So I'm just like, what do you mean? Like, I just talked to him, you know, like, just wake him up. Like, he's probably in a deep sleep, just in a deep sleep. He's like, no, bro, he's gone. Like, he's blue. So I get in my car, I get to my parents' house, probably within, I don't know, fast. I got there fast. I regarded every stop sign, every stoplight I seen stopping me from getting to my dad. By the time I get there, the EMS are there, I run upstairs. My dad's in this recliner next to the bed. My mom's walking around the room, just shaking her head. She can't even look at him. Troy's in front of him holding his hand. Uh, my little brother Ross is downstairs just, just crying. And I just look at my dad, he's just, he's blue. You know, he looks sleep, but he was just blue. He wasn't there. And after that, I just walked downstairs. I don't really remember walking out the front door. I just got in my car and I just cried, you know, because I knew my dad was not coming back. We tried to help him, he tried to get help, but no one wanted to help him and no one regarded or took into 
in consideration of anything he was trying to tell them at the hospitals that he went to. Like he should not have to have went to three different hospitals to get treatment and he didn't even get treatment. And the crazy thing is a couple of weeks after my dad died, the hospitals, every hospital that he went to sent us a bill for stuff that wasn't covered underneath his uh, health insurance, you know? So they still wanted to be paid for services that they didn't even render properly, which was crazy. But that night my dad died, my mom had to go to the hospital as well too. So my dad sat in the house probably, I want to say he probably died around 6.30 in the morning. They didn't come pick my dad up probably around till about 4.35 in the afternoon. So he's just in the house the whole time upstairs, you know, just, just gone. So before they came and got him, I just went up to talk to him, pray with him, just told him I had everybody. I'm the oldest of six, so it was my job to step up and take care of my mom, my brothers and sisters, you know, because he's not here to do it. My granddad's not here to do it. So that night, my mom starts experiencing the same thing, like her fever shot up. She was a 103 that night. This is probably three hours after my dad's body is removed from the house. My mom's in the room. She's in the bed just laying there saying she don't feel good. She doesn't feel good. But she doesn't want to go to the hospital because she knows they're going to turn her away like they did my dad. So I finally convinced her to go to the hospital. We go to Beaumont. Now, there's a lady in front of us at Beaumont because they have a quarantine. So it's a little line off. There's a lady in front of us, and she's complaining of stomach pains from sushi that she ate from Grubhub. So they let this lady right in the hospital. They take her back. You think she had COVID, you know, as fast as they got this lady into the hospital. So now it's my mom's turn. My mom now has a prescription from her doctor to get tested for COVID. She has a handwritten note from her doctor because she went to the doctor that day as well that my dad died. She went to, and she also had an email verification code. And all they had to do was take these numbers that my mother was to give them from the email from the doctor and type it into a computer and it will pull up her other prescription. The lady looks at my mom and goes, oh, you're better off going home, man, because we have no room here for you. Now, the hospital we took our mom to has three other major hospitals across Michigan. They didn't offer her a ride to not one of those hospitals. They told my mom to go home, quarantine, stay hydrated, and then find help if she could find help. So they pushed my mom out the hospital at Beaumont as well. So now me and my mom are sitting in the car. I'm like, mom, if you go home, I don't, I, I know you're not going to wake up, you know, because my mom's bad. So I was like, we got to find you a hospital. So I take my mom across town to Henry Ford. And I get my mom out of the car. I had to go get a wheelchair for her because she couldn't even walk at this point. So I go get the wheelchair, pull her up to the emergency room entrance, and there's a quarantine nurse outside. She asked me what's wrong. I told her, I go, our grandfather just died. Our dad just died. My mom has COVID. Like, there's no way that she doesn't have it because my mom's a healthy woman, and she can't even walk. So the lady looks at my mom, looks at me. She takes her in. She goes, she, and the doc, nurse comes back and talks to me. She goes, now, sir, if they take your mom to the left of the hospital, I'm going to tell you they're not going to keep her. If they take her to the right of the hospital, that's the COVID wing, and they're going to admit her, okay? So, man, <laughs> I kiss my mom on her head because I don't know if I'm going to see her again, you know, because she's bad. They take her to the back. They take her to the right. So I see that they're going to admit her, you know. So my mom calls me. Five hours later, tell me that she is being admitted because she has COVID and that she, her oxygen level was probably like a, I want to say like an 89 at this time. She got to the hospital, so her oxygen was low and that she needed to be hooked up. She wasn't, she didn't get put on a ventilator. She got put on the oxygen tanks, you know, but they only kept my mom in the hospital for probably two days. 
But my mom comes home two days later. You know, I know she's not healthy. And they sent her home with two weeks worth of oxygen tanks. My car was full of oxygen tanks, picking up my mother from the hospital. But my mom is home. She gets home April 18th. Now, my parents' anniversary is April 21st. So on April 21st, my mom wakes up. She calls me. She's like, it just feels like someone's kicking me in my back. Like, my back is super sore. It just feels like someone's kicking me. So I get down to her as fast as I can, take her back to the hospital. Come to find out my mom developed pneumonia in both lungs. And she also had double, she had blood clots in both of her lungs. So now she had to be readmitted to the hospital. So this last time that she was in the hospital, she was on oxygen and she was also being introduced to blood thinner to break up the blood clots. But this time she's in the hospital probably about three or four days before she comes home. Uh, the last time she came home, she was better. But my mom, she's way better now. She's she's way better than she was last year. Like she gets better every day. But she's just she's just heartbroken, like all of us are about my dad because he should be here. If he had the fighting chance, I think my dad would honestly still be here if the hospitals would have took what he was telling them into consideration instead of writing him off as if they knew exactly how this man was feeling. My dad would be here today, man. I wouldn't be giving this interview over a podcast about him, but. It's a blessing and a curse, I would say, because we lost our dad, but it's also a vocal point that needs to be discussed in America because why are people being turned away at the hospitals? Why aren't we receiving proper health care? Like we're equal human beings, just like everyone else. We work hard, just like everyone else. Why can't we get the same respect and courtesy as everyone else in America does? So that's a vocal conversation that should have been had, you know, but it took for my dad to die for that to come out. And I'm just blessed to be able to be his son for once, and then also to be able to talk about him and to bring awareness so no family has to go through what we went through ever again. Keith, I hate what happened to you. My heart is breaking and I just feel the pain that you must, you know, just, uh, I just feel pain for your family. And I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I mean, you didn't have to go through that. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Man, that's a that's a horrible situation that you've experienced, and I I rejoice that your mother is recovering and feeling better, and that you didn't have that you didn't lose her as well. Yeah, I thought I thought if I didn't get my mom to the hospital, she wouldn't be here for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith, Eric's first question referenced an important quote from Dr. King, and and there's another quote from him that also resonates with me on a personal level after hearing what you just described with your family's story. And it says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And and you're right. And as we continue to hear about the racial disparities in our country that were exacerbated by the, effect, the effects of the pandemic, um, you know, Oprah Winfrey is someone with great influence that felt something needed to be done, thankfully. And the color of care is her way of doing something with the intention that the stories we share serve as both a warning and foster a deeper understanding of what changes need to take place to, to better serve us all. I'm so grateful that you're willing to share your story and that others can benefit from it and, and that we can uh, take this conversation to the next level. Can you describe for us your experience with the film and how it has played a role in the healing of, of your family? So with the film, the producers reached out to us that summer, August 2020, me and my mom were sitting on the porch. And at first, they didn't tell me who it was for. They were just like, or you'd be interested in doing a documentary. We heard about your dad. You know, I was like, yeah, sure. Like anything, any opportunity I get to talk about him, I'm going to take it and use it, you know. 
So it's like, sure, it's like, all right, well, we need you to sign the NDA. We'll call you in the morning because it's for a producer, but we can't tell you until you sign this form. So once I signed the form, they told me it was for Harpo uh, Productions. And it's just, it's a, it's a blessing, you know, to be able to use Oprah, Oprah's platform to be able to spread an important topic. Because I don't think no one else would have cared enough if it wasn't for Oprah to help our family stories get out that and include everyone else's in the documentary. So it was a blessing for sure to be able to have her platform to spread awareness because this should change. I'm pretty sure my dad isn't the only guy that experienced that during that uh, pandemic. You know, like I'm pretty sure there's other people that got turned away and went home and died. You know, we just didn't get a chance to hear about them. And I feel for each and every one of those families and I'm just grateful to be able to use my voice to change, to make a change. You know, that's my job now. Like, I don't want anyone else to have to feel how my family feels. Like it sucks every day to wake up and our dad's not there, you know? So just trying to stop that pandemic within itself of minorities not receiving proper health care. So I feel like that's my job now is to speak up for the other people that can't speak for themselves. In my intro earlier, Keith, I mentioned the deaths of Floyd, Arbery, and Taylor. And following the passing of your father, you wrote an op-ed in the Detroit Free Press where you said the following. When I heard about Breonna Taylor's death and then watched the videos of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery dying, I wondered if they felt what my father felt before he died in April from COVID-19. He'd been turned away from three hospitals. After the last hospital wouldn't treat him, he went home and told my mom that no one would help him. Then the strongest man I've ever known broke down crying. They're going to let me die. They're going to let me die, he muttered through sobs. Similar to Arbery and Floyd, he was gone soon after. It's time for the next civil rights movement before another family ends up like Miss Taylor's, Mr. Arbery's, Mr. Floyd's, or mine. Such a powerful quote, Keith. And I wanted to ask you if you could further illustrate the parallels you see between the death of your father and those other racially motivated killings. As an African-American, can you share more about your lived experience and seeing inequalities and how you see institutional racism manifested in policing, healthcare, and society as a whole? Yeah, so for George Floyd, you know, it was just, like, that man was suffocated in front of people, you know, like, in the middle of the day, like, he was screaming, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't breathe. My dad went to the hospital, the place that we all go to when there's a problem with us, told the hospital that he couldn't breathe. No one did anything, just like with George Floyd, no one did anything. People just stood around and wrote off what he was screaming and helping, you know, so... That's how I kind of felt my, I know my dad felt like that to go to a hospital and tell these people, oh, I can't, I'm not properly breathing. Can you help me? And they send you home like that has to, that's suffocation. You know, they suffocated my dad by not even giving him an oxygen tube while he was in the waiting room. You know, they just sit there, they just sat there and let that man die. And then after so long, I just felt like how probably Brianna Taylor's family felt to have them police officers that broke into her apartment and killed her while she was sleeping not be charged in America, forget about what happened to that young lady. I feel like that was gonna to happen to my dad. You know, like it was it was the main thing to talk about. It was the cool thing to talk about, I should say, when the pandemic first hit, was what happened to my dad. And then it kind of faded away as the pandemic switched its, I would say, topics when it became about money, you know? And once people found out that only black people, supposedly minorities are the larger groups affected, no one really cared anymore, you know? 
And that's just with anything concerning minorities. When it comes to us, no one cares about what happens to us or how we feel or what we might think about the situation. So the healthcare system and the civil, I mean, the court systems need an overhaul. It needs to be fair for everyone. Everyone should be able to go to sleep at night without the police breaking into your apartment. People should be able to get arrested without winding up dead on the streets or in the precinct. You know, people should be able to go to the hospitals and get help and not go home and die. Keith, the moment you describe is so much bigger than three killings and police brutality. It's the thousands of disproportionately Black, Latino, and Indigenous deaths from COVID-19 and the inequalities they highlight and make tangible in housing, income, medical access, quality of care, and many other things. Against this backdrop, that same community is preyed upon through police brutality and other manifestations of racism. In this single snapshot of a confined period of time during the pandemic, we saw the problems that have pervaded communities of color here for centuries. With the virus, we saw how African-Americans were three times more likely to be hospitalized compared to their white counterparts and twice as likely to die from the virus. But the realization of this disparity has also made us recognize the vast amount of other health inequities. For example, African-American patients receive lower quality health care, including treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes, and preventive care. They're also less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease, and they're more likely to have unnecessary limb amputations. African-American men in particular have the worst health outcomes of any major demographic group in the country. Health disparities are also affecting African-American women, leading to increased death rates from breast cancer, a threefold risk of dying during pregnancy, and significantly greater chances of dying needlessly from preventable diseases. Keith, as we think about and reimagine our healthcare system, what do you believe equitable care looks like for patients like your father? And what resources should the government provide aside from insurance to ensure patients can actually receive timely and adequate care? I believe that the healthcare should make it to where you, when you go to the doctor, you know something's bothering you. I just think doctors should listen more to patients. And I understand that doctors go to school forever and they may feel like they are entitled to their opinion because they're the doctor, you're coming to see them and get their opinion. But at the same time, doctors should learn how to take into consideration what the patients are telling them because no one knows how you feel like yourself. You know, you can't tell someone else, oh, I don't think you're feeling, I don't think your fever is that bad, you know, but that person is on their deathbed, like with my father, you know? So I think that doctors should listen way, way more than they do now to the patients of all colors, not just black people, just all colors, you know, and then offer, even if you don't think a minority may take what you're saying into consideration, you should still offer that treatment to that person because they may take what you're telling them into consideration. But if you don't tell me, oh, try this medicine, I'm not going to take it because you never even offered it to me. I'm not a doctor. I'm here to get your opinion and tell you how I'm feeling. Meet me half, meet the patients halfway. I think doctors should learn how to meet patients halfway, give their opinion, but also meet the patient at the half point to where the patient is telling them, I feel this, this, and that. And the doctor should then go with their diagnosis and offer the proper treatment to everyone, not based off of religion, color, marital status, or anything, you know? And then I think the government should offer some type of minority training for doctors. Doctors should learn how to deal with minorities and people that don't look like them before they're even allowed to touch a human being, you know, because we're human beings at the end of the day as well. Even though we're minorities, we're still human beings. 
And I think doc all doctors should go through some type of minority training to be properly trained to deal with people that don't look and think like them, you know? Well, Keith, uh, I really connect with that. And that's the premise uh, behind uh, this podcast, Race to Value, and uh, the institute that Daniel and I lead. Uh, it's about value-based care. And that model of care delivery is really what the vision for the future of the American healthcare system is, where you have a culturally competent, relationship-based, holistic model of care, where you really spend time getting to know the patients, you address what's called social determinants of health and really things that impact a person's health status outside of the actual healthcare setting. It's about being proactive and not reactive. And it's also about public health. And I, as I think about what happened to your father, I just find it unfathomable that he had been struggling to breathe for days amidst a global pandemic that acutely affects the respiratory system. However, he was never tested for COVID-19, despite knowing yeah, he had been exposed by close contact to his father, your grandfather, David Fowler, who had tested positive and was hospitalized. And when you look at the national data, what we're seeing is that this is actually not an isolated occurrence with racial or ethnic minorities across the country having disparate access to COVID-19 testing. I mean, we see this happen in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, and we continue to see disparities happening with the pandemic even to this day. I mean, just a few months ago, even a searing report from the Black Coalition Against COVID detailed the immense toll the COVID-19 pandemic has continued to take on African-American communities with hospitalizations for Black people still more than twice the overall rate. And while hospitalizations continue to fall in other groups, they persist among Black Americans. If there's one lesson we can learn from these disparities, it's that we need a community-based health infrastructure that embraces health equity as fundamental to health. And that's what value-based care is really all about. And we have to start thinking about public health instead of health care, which is really just about reacting to people's sickness after society has already failed them. So in your opinion, you know, how can public health become a more effective model and service to African-American communities? I mean, what role, for example, do you think that religious institutions can play as a cornerstone for activism, resources, and community building to improve the health of communities of color? I think churches that are within the urban area should promote healthcare more. I'm pretty sure there's doctors and nurses that go to the churches that's inside the urban communities. I don't understand how the churches could be for the people, but yet and still not promoting people going to the doctor, you know, or even having health fairs for people who might not know how to properly book a doctor's appointment. Because there's people in the world in the African-American community that's never been to the doctors because they're afraid of one, what they're going to be told, and two, they don't honestly know how to book appointments, you know? So I think the churches should do health fairs, health screenings, any type of health care. I think the churches should promote it because people follow the church at the end of the day. And the churches are going to be the ones that should steer the people in the right direction to get the proper health care and promote health care within the minority community. You know, because like I said, minorities listen to the church. Uh, Keith Eric brought up cultural competence, and, and we know it's the bedrock of a great patient provider relationship in a healthcare setting. 
And what that basically means is that the care team shares the lived experience of the patients they serve, their own ethnicity, their own race. It reflects the patient populations and the people that they're serving. We, we had a prior episode in the podcast where we had a patient story, uh, Sugandan Bharati. He's an Indian who saw that it was the only the Indian nurse in the ICU that ever expressed concern that he might get addicted to the painkillers that he was on. In the case of your father, I can't help but think, had he been treated by African-American doctors, he wouldn't have been pushed out of the doors of three hospitals without a COVID test. In the Color of Care documentary, it even talked about how medical students believed in anatomical differences between white and black patients, making them think that black patients felt less pain and should be treated differently. Another aspect of culturally competent care is having providers that are willing to stay with their patients and pray with them, not turning their back on them to treat other patients more preferentially because they might share the same skin color. For all the healthcare providers who are out there listening to this episode, can you talk about how you think African-American patients should be treated in the hospital in the sense of them being a, a human worthy of the same care as others that come from major communities? Yes, I think I believe that all people, no matter what color, should be treated equally when they go to the hospital. Black people are not given a fair chance at anything really when it comes to court system or healthcare seems like because for my father when he went to the three different hospitals for one the detroit receiving didn't let him in the hospital beaumont barely looked at him told him he had bronchitis but they also gave my father a piece of paper that told him to act as if he had COVID 19. but you're not sick enough to have a test today sir or get admitted but go home and act as if you have COVID 19. henry ford gave him the same piece of paper you're not sick enough for a test or to be admitted but go home and act as if you have COVID-19. They just need to treat people fairly and just take into consideration what that patient is telling you. Like my dad was in there begging for his life and he was just sent out the door with a piece of paper to tell him to go home to quarantine, but you're not sick enough to come into the hospital, but go home, sir. Go home and figure it out for yourself is basically what they told my dad. Well, Keith, I wanted to ask you now about the long-standing history of distrust with the healthcare system and African-American communities. I mean, the medical establishment has a long history of mistreating Black Americans from gruesome experiments on enslaved people to war ster sterilizations of Black women and the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study that withheld treatment from hundreds of Black men for decades to let doctors track the course of the disease. So it's not surprising that Around 40% of African-Americans said in late 2020 that they'd even be willing to take a COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, medical mistrust is not just related to the past legacies of mistreatment, but also stems from people's contemporary experiences of discrimination in healthcare, from inequities in access to health insurance, healthcare facilities and treatments, to institutional practices that make it difficult for Black Americans to obtain care. What do you think it will take for African-American communities en masse to begin trusting the American healthcare system, even if healthcare begins to do the right thing by Black Americans in addressing health inequities? Is it possible to overcome the intergenerational mistrust and trauma that has persisted for well over 150 years since the end of slavery? It's going to take time. That's going to take a long time, I think, because with the COVID-19, 
African-Americans couldn't even get a test, right? We couldn't even, couldn't go to the hospitals, couldn't go to the doctors to get tested. But when the COVID-19 vaccine came out, they wanted to put us first in line for this vaccine. I think for Black people to trust the healthcare system, the healthcare system is going to have to prove to us that they're not just trying to experiment on us, not just trying to push this vaccine or any other vaccine on us as a test experiment to see how it's going to react to the general population. There's going to have to be a lot of sit downs with African-American leaders, senators, politicians. This is going to have to be a major overhaul of the whole healthcare that's going to show and prove to Black people that they can be trusted now. I think that's going to take a long time to do, but that's what we're here talking about now, right? It's the overhaul and change that's going to be in effect one day. Keith, I'd like to talk a little bit about the resiliency of your community. You know, Detroit is the biggest majority Black city in the country, and it's known for showing resilience in the face of unprecedented adversity. Your father was a Detroit bus driver. For many years, he and took his pride in his role as the breadwinner for his wife and children. He's defined resilience in the sacrifices he made for your family, and he didn't deserve to die the way he did with such pain inflicted by neglect from our country's healthcare system. As I think about what resilience means, and I think of you, Keith, and the work you're doing to keep his name alive, when we learn how to become resilient, we learn how to embrace the beautifully broad spectrum of the human experience. And we're able to have courage, tenacity, and per perseverance to keep going despite obstacles, trusting that if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you will light it up yourself through hope and faith and determination. I'd love to hear your thoughts of inspiration for how we can learn from your family and what it means to you to wear those gold teddy bear pendants around your neck that contain the ashes of your father and grandfather. And what impact can the Color of Care campaign that your father inspired make in improving the lives of others? Man, I just had to, our family just had to learn how to take something so negative and make it positive, you know, to spread our pain, to change the world. So I hope with the Color of Care campaign that people take a listen. First, I hope people, I hope everyone watches the documentary, you know, because it's eye-opening not just for my family or the other families that's in there, but all the other information that's put into that documentary is powerful. And if we don't study history, we're always gonna to return to that same point in history. And it's time for a change in the healthcare system where everyone is looked at equally, everyone is treated fairly, everyone stands a fighting chance to have a life, you know, because who wants to die? No one wants to die, but when you're not receiving the proper healthcare, you're gonna die sooner than you need to. So for the resilient part, we just had to take that pain and make it a flame and just spread our father's voice everywhere. And with the teddy bear ashes, I take them everywhere with me. You know, they're never, I never take these things off because they're my dad and my grandfather. I take them everywhere with me. They're still here to remind me of what it is to be a man and take care of my family and how to be a support system for people that don't really have no one else to go to and just to be a fighting voice for people that are afraid to speak out because a lot of people are in our community are afraid to speak out against injustice and unfairness but i'm not you know that's what i'm here for is to use my voice the story of my family to change the world so i just hope that everyone who sees the color of care everyone who sees anything about any type of inequity in the healthcare system would do something within their self or in their power to change that you know Keith, as we wrap up our conversation today, I, I wanted to ask you if you could share maybe a story about 
your father and grandfather. I mean, we've, we've spoken about their demise, but I feel like there's so much to be said about who they were as people. Would you mind maybe sharing a personal story from your family that might give our listeners some insights about the, the kind of people that they were? Yeah, of course. So my dad, he loved, like he loved to work and take care of us to make sure everyone was taken care of without a worry in the world. My dad would give you the shirt off his back if he could. My dad was, an, I never seen my dad argue with anyone. I never seen my dad raise his voice. He was a big teddy bear. Him and my grandfather were big teddy bears. So that's why I got the teddy bear pendants. But they were just big, soft guys. You know, they both loved camping. They were hard workers. My grandfather taught me how to build and stain decks. He built his own garage and deck by hand. And I helped him with that. My grandfather taught all of us a lot of life lessons that's never going to leave us. And let me see a good story. Let me see. I would say the last Christmas before they both passed, we were all in my grandfather's house and my dad doesn't like to dance at all. You know, he wasn't a dancer. My mom loves to dance. My grandfather loved to dance. And my dad was up dancing with my grandfather in the kitchen. It was just a sight to see, you know, my dad didn't have the best rhythm, but he was dancing with his dad, you know? So it's kind of, it's kind of bittersweet that they passed the way they passed. Cause they were so close, you know, and they couldn't live without each other. So I get it. And we try to, use that as a way to get through the pain because it sucks not having them around, but knowing that they're together and still taking care of us behind the scenes, it's, it's an unexplainable feeling, but they were both great guys. They would do anything for anyone at any time. You know, they didn't have an enemy in the world. Keith, I, I really appreciate you sharing that personal perspective and that that story. I, I know I can't even imagine how much pain, you know, this ordeal has been for you and your family. I, I wanted to thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. I just can't help but think it's going to change the healthcare and uh, and really uh, make a difference in people's lives. And I, I want to commend you for your willingness, your courage to to share the story and, and to keep your, uh, your father's memory alive. Thank you uh, so much for being with us on the podcast this week. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate you guys. More than you guys know. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Uh, really you. grateful for your time. Hey, is there anything else that you would like to say that maybe we didn't ask or get a chance to talk about? I just hope that I just hope things change for the better for the whole healthcare system. You know, no, no one should have to go through what anyone in that family went through, no matter what color you are. If human beings are looking for help from another human being, help that human being out. You know, just I just hope change comes for everyone. I just hope better days are ahead of everyone. So that's all. That's all I have to say. Amen. Thank you so much, Keith. Really grateful for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Race to Value listeners, thank you for joining us this week and learning more about the Color of Care education campaign. This is a campaign that's working to prepare current and future doctors, nurses, and medical professionals to play an active role in combating systemic racism and the delivery of healthcare, as well as provide others with the necessary tools to address this issue and advocate for and empower patients who experience these inequities. The campaign is also working with historically black colleges and universities and other black leadership communities to help further empower them into taking action to address these issues at hand. We also wanted to thank our sponsor this week, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Go to 
the Institute for Advancing Health Value website if you wanted to download our intelligence brief that came out this week. And Daniel, I'd love to have you share with our listeners too about our upcoming event that we're going to be having focusing on this important issue of health equity. Yes, I'd love to, Eric. Thanks. And thank you all listeners for staying with us and being part of this important conversation. As Eric mentioned, we have an event coming up on December 1st. It's our health equity conference, and it'll be talking about health equity and the overlap of of health equity and value-based care. And preceding that, we thought it would be really important and timely to share a screening of the color of care. And so we invite you to join us on November 30th to watch the color of care to help us be in the right frame of mind for that conversation on December 1st as we look at health equity and value-based care together. And it's a virtual summit. It's welcome to all, and we hope to see you there. And thanks again for joining us this week on The Race to Value. 